Engine Cutoff. I'm Anthony Colangelo, and I brought an old friend back, Casey Dreyer, the Chief of Space Policy at the Planetary Society, to talk about the budget request that uh, the White House submitted. Um, Casey and I had a great conversation after the midterms just a couple of months ago, so I could think of no one better to bring back to talk about the budget request, uh, how we should read it, what it means, and, and dive into some of the details. So uh, he's one of my favorite people to talk to about space policy, so I'm really excited to talk with him. So without further ado, let's give him a call. Casey Dreyer, welcome back. It uh, hasn't been too many episodes between the last time I talked to you and now, but uh, thanks for coming back on short notice. Oh, of course. Uh, anytime a budget is out there, I'm there too. <laughs> That's exactly right. And if there's anyone who can help me parse budget math, uh, it is you. The only the only person who goes out of their way to make Google Docs uh, spreadsheets of historically accurate inflated numbers of budgets. And it's it's pretty incredible. I was in there today. I was in your Google Doc today. And it's just continually amazed by what you're what you're trying to wrangle in there. So you're doing a real service. Uh Appreciate that. I, I I made that for me, and I assumed maybe one or two other people. So to hear <laughs> anyone use it, yes. But I mean, I think it's to, to the honestly though to the point of it. Looking at the numbers, that's one thing you can't fudge in a way, right? And and it just allows you to see narratives and trends. I've made arguments for this both in papers and in verbal sessions like this, where no matter what your rhetoric is, if you look at where the money goes, since you can only spend a dollar once that tells you the real priority at the end of the day. And that's why I love looking at the numbers and evaluating those over time, because it tells you this narrative about what is important and what is just said to be important. Yeah, and that's a that's a perfect place to start too, especially with, you know, the the fact that this is a budget request. It's it's not even really filtered into Congress at all. Um, I don't I haven't seen a ton of congressional reaction or I just haven't sought it out because why would I do such a thing right now? I'm just having a good week here. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's, the budget requests are always a statement of intent from the administration. Uh, certainly a lot of, of NASA input on that. Um, and there's obviously messaging around a budget rollout. Um, last week when it was kind of the top line budget rolled out, uh, Biden flew over my house. He was like dangerously low, in my opinion, for flying ospreys over a very, very densely populated city. But it like rattled my whole house. I saw it out the window in my office. And it was pretty sweet. Uh, he's here yeah. rolling out the budget. And a lot of the messaging uh, was really, you know, Russia oriented. And specifically in the space world, the, the two things I saw highlighted were uh, our cooperation with Europe on the missions that Russia had pulled out of, and the ISS and the state that it finds itself in. So just looking purely at a messaging level, um, was that what you expected to see? Did you read anything into the way it was rolled out? It's it's broadly what I expected. I think the implications and what we're seeing here is civil space, exploratory space, science-based space being wrapped up into this larger national purpose and, and geopolitical moment as this is a tool. You know, it's not, you, we have national security space, obviously, but we can use what NASA does best, and that is really engaging with our allies, engaging with partners, soft power, and peaceful cooperative efforts. It's not seen in isolation anymore. And ultimately, I think that's a, a pretty good thing if you're interested in NASA having the resources it needs over time. And it's positioning it, again, as this available opportunity to say, 
we're going to use all of government to address needs here on earth. And one of those needs is kind of this new geopolitical competitive world we're moving into. And NASA will be a part of that. And absolutely, that makes sense to me that we then talk about the ISS, which is the largest single international partnership in space. And positioning NASA as itself to tighten alliances with the European partners to the US, not just through the ISS, but through Artemis, through Mars sample return, through this broad scientific engagement. So again, it fits perfectly within, excuse me, it fits perfectly within this new pathway that, you know, again, global kind of competitive situation we find ourselves in. Um, the list that you just provided is probably the list of topics we should talk about. Artemis, ISS, <laughs> right. planetary. Um, let's go with Artemis first, because I honestly don't think there's a ton to, to break down here. The biggest news item out of this budget rollout was that they officially delayed Artemis 4 from 2027 to 2028. And there's now this like three-year gap between Artemis 3 and 4, which is not surprising by any means. I think... My reading of this is it's just a way to say that Artemis 3 is delayed without actually moving Artemis 3 on the calendar. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it seems to be kind of what they're indicating there. In my I, I was going to say, assuming Artemis 3 goes as planned, and Artemis yeah. 2, and, and they're pretty upfront in the budget with Artemis 2 that currently it's slated for November of, of 24, but probably won't. Yeah. And that was, I think, more the key of the upper exploration state. So this is upper state, this new uh, upgraded aspect of the Block 1B uh, SLS. And you have issues there with the mobile launch system, too. So you have a number of delayed projects already in that critical path. That's likely the source of that delay. And generally, probably won't be getting any smaller. Those things tend not to be. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we look at this, it's like, ah, man, the the fourth launch of Artemis <laughs> to the moon is going to be slightly delayed after we have like two <laughs> on one on the surface and one in orbit. It, it's still stunning to me. And reading through this budget, I've been doing this for 10 years. That's not as long as some people, but it's, it's long enough at this point. And I already have these old man vibes of ah, back in my day when I was reading the budget, we had no destination. There was, a, there was no <laughs> lunar program, much less a delayed one. And it just strikes me every time of what that this is, the only other time I've read through budgets and seen stuff about lunar landers was 1967, 1968, right? It's just, it's just amazing that this is still there. And this is happening, even if it's not at the pace we necessarily would like to see. Yeah, the, the criticism of, Ar- of Artemis 4 is there's too much jammed into it. It's not that yeah. they don't have anything to do. It's that we are waiting on too much hardware for that one mission, right? And it does feel like a junk drawer in the manifest where it's like, Oh, everything else will go there, right? Gateway, surface habitat, the mm-hmm. uh, logistics vehicle, the other lunar lander, the spacesuits. We'll get to it. And so, yeah, it is It is a good thing that there is so much to draw in that little box on this calendar. Um, it does feel, I don't know, like I, part of me is just like, all right, what of these things are actually going to be pulled out of Artemis 4 at some point? Is it going to be Gateway's its own thing? Uh, or, you know, I don't know the, the whole thing about the upper stage, you have to co-manifest a gateway payload to fly it. That really starts to stick out of, uh, mm-hmm. Jake is asking, well, do you think there's going to be some more IUS orders here coming for ULA? Because, you know, if we have a lander and we have the ability to fly down to the lunar surface and that delay keeps pushing back because everything for Artemis 4 has to hit at the same time, are we going to fly some more block one SLSs? and do some yeah. more lander missions seems plausible to me. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I would not be surprised to see the four manifest change. And, and also, again, depending on what Starship is doing at the time and all the not to mention blue or the, the other like notable kind of consequences or even what we're seeing with China and Russia and, and their activities at the moon. A lot of this is still TBD. And I think I wouldn't read. So when, when we see these you know, a NASA budget in a sense is unique, a budget request that it's not just asking for next year's budget. It's asking for the next five years, or it's at least projecting out. There's not many federal agencies that that do that. And we always take this with a grain of salt in the, those long term projections. It's obviously there'll be a different precedent by the end, you know, at, no matter what. But well, actually, by 28, it might, could still be Biden. But obviously, a lot changes in five years. So this is more of signals intent and policy. And I think that's always the right way to read a president's budget request for NASA, is that even if Congress doesn't necessarily come through, or even in this case this year, do its fundamental job of funding the government, <laughs> this tells you what the administration's policy is. This is what they value. This is what they want to do. This is the official stance on these various types of programs. And that tells you a lot. And even again, at a smaller level, the below the headline level, Congress rarely tinkers with the small stuff. And so most of the stuff, even though people like to dismiss the president's budget as dead on arrival, you know, and in some ways it is, but Congress, unless it addresses every tiny little bit, the president's budget becomes the default administrative stance in terms of how NASA executes its program. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And I think applying that to the ISS program is is a good thing to do in this state. Um, so the, the two things there uh, that are worth watching are this new deorbit tub tug that is being deorbit tub. That's a different that's a different thing. I don't know what that is. <laughs> different project. Um, <laughs> that one's not getting eight one hundred eighty million dollars uh, like the deorbit tug is. Um, and then the other line item is the commercial Leo development line item, which the, the news there is really that there isn't any. And that to me is the news that that they are kind of just keeping on with that trajectory that that has been the case for what was projected about this program. So um, both of these, I look at the statement there that, and this is the alarming part to me is that the NASA and the administration's statement on the current state of the ISS is everything's fine, except when it comes to the ISS deorbit. And in my view, I'm like, everything else is not fine. And the deorbit is a problem I'm willing to figure out down the line at some point. So you know, the I went back and looked at the fiscal year 2022 budget request to look at what those out years were for commercial Leo, just to start there, um, because I was still at the moment where we had a couple years where they requested like 15 million dollars, 17 million dollars. Fiscal year 2022 is the first year they requested over 100 million and they had projected 186 out for the next five years. They basically just dragged that sell out and it was like, I don't know, 186. Um we are sitting at a $228 million request now for fiscal year 2024, and they project that to climb, uh, basically climb starting in 26 onward up to like almost half a billion dollars. So it is a little higher than what it started out at two years ago in the budget requests, but it doesn't look like it's high enough for my eyes that that this commercial Leo effort is honestly being given the importance that it should if NASA is serious about transitioning off the ISS at some point. Am I am I crazy? Is this enough money to fly space stations? I guess we're going to find out. But I mean, this is exactly my point in that despite the rhetoric, look at where the dollars are going. And 
Exactly. Yes. If, if they're spending at most a quarter billion a year on what will be like, we, we absolutely commit to maintaining permanent U.S., you know, access to low Earth orbit and, and presence in space. And so we're going to to achieve that, we're going to devote 0.01 percent of our total budget to ensuring yeah. this future. Yes, that's, then you can see, well, what's the rhetoric versus the actual dollars yeah. at the end of the day? And that tells you something. And I think just a small correction. I mean, the NASA had asked for, I believe, $150 million at the beginning. For True, they were asking for it, and they only got So 15, they were always right. asking okay. the hundreds of millions ramping right, right. up over time. And it was Congress who was the real, they put the brakes on this. Right. Very similar, actually, to how commercial crew uh, yep. progressed, where NASA initially asked for something like a billion dollars, and they got hundreds of, a couple hundred million with great reluctance from Congress. And then Congress had always kind of crammed them down until this tipping point happened where they're like oh wow we this is a real problem <laughs> we what was that tipping this. point casey out of curiosity <laughs> it was a boeing entering the uh, competitive uh, being selected as a it was that provider. and then it was also russia invading places it well, always, yeah, the, always you, seems Ukraine, to happen yeah, right around those the, years <laughs> uh, yes right the the first uh, invasion the of first the first crimea Ukrainian situation yeah, well crimea not situation. the first crimea situation but the well, first of the modern era <laughs> modern, yeah, in yeah. the 21st century yeah and and i think realizing that but uh, you know i i wouldn't dismiss the Boeing factor too, frankly, oh, and also realizing that there wasn't really any good options here. Um, I think we're probably going to see a, a, a similar situation with commercial Leo. I honestly have no idea uh, if that's enough money. Every report, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read through the official, you know, NASA uh, reports or, or requested reports from like Stippy and other institutions about commercial space stations that said, there's no way to make these work financially. Yeah. And they're going ahead with them, hopefully to make them work. And I just don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you just don't have that much budget room to work with when you are trying to go to the moon again on a relatively austere budget, do all the science stuff, also invest in aeronautics, space technology, and continue to run the International Space Station and build a billion dollar deorbit tug. You just start to run out of space. Yeah. And a quarter million a year that, you know, that's not nothing. You know, we're talking about billions of dollars over a few years. And if there's money coming in from private industry to match that, maybe, you know, <laughs> that's, that's going to be a fascinating a experiment to yeah. watch. Yeah. And I mean, I would not be surprised at the end of the day if we see ISS extended to 2035. You know, I, I don't think anyone would be. That's probably what's going to happen. Just I would be I more shocked that through. ISS can make it than I would be that there's political will. For <laughs> yeah, that it's, to happen. It's, right. right. It's one thing to, to, to policy, like to legislate yeah, yeah. thou shalt go to 2035, then actually <laughs> extend a, a 40 year old uh, spacecraft. But that's, you know, that's literally what happened with the space shuttle. And these human spaceflight programs that have become deeply entrenched. And this was always my argument, I think, that we talked about with like SLS. So yep. once these tip into this entrenchment, they're very hard to stop. You had the space shuttle after Columbia. You had George W. Bush say, we're going to end this. And then it, they kept adding missions. <laughs> Congress kept adding missions uh, for the shuttle. And it was real. And even at the very end, they were still pushing for more missions, even when they needed, we need to stop this. It is no longer safe to fly. We have completed our mission with the ISS. And it was just, there's so much inertia behind these things. And even then winding it down, they had the Congress dictated these massive uh, payouts for uh, uh, pensions and other things for the, the shuttle workforce. And it's not an easy thing to spin this down when it's been running for 30 years. And 
theoretically, that big wedge of money can flip towards space stations, uh, commercial stations at that point, but it will be a completely different relationship. I was reminded, you know, commercial space transportation runs about $1.6, $1.7 billion a year. And that's just to buy these commercial launch services to the International Space Station. Those will need somewhere to go. Those companies will want to keep launching to something. And you could, you know, easily direct those to a commercial station on top of whatever operating cost you want to supplant it with. And so, you know, will we save any money at the end of the day? Who knows? Will it be enough to keep those? Will they be safe? What will they be doing? For what purpose? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You can hear commercial space stations to me always sound like it's it's one of those things where I feel like we're running a number of experiments based on an extremely sex, uh, successful single data point of commercial transportation services to, to low, low Earth orbit. And they're, you know, Na NASA and the US policy is extrapolating that outward to say everywhere. It's like, why not commercial, you know, just slap commercial in front of it. Is it appropriate to have a commercial space station? We don't know. Is it appropriate to have commercial landers on the moon? <laughs> we don't know. And so we're running these experiments. But historically, we shouldn't expect them all to work just because commercial space transportation worked, yeah, particularly in an environment reason, right. <laughs> financially, yeah, and, and also in a financial environment where suddenly high risk, you know, when, when interest rates are no longer zero and money isn't free to throw around in crazy risk-taking ventures, people may just want to put their money in a 3.5% bank return and not invest in a long-shot commercial space venture. But we'll see. This is yeah. the exciting part in a sense about the next 10 years. Yeah, I and so I had this I had this one week where I totally I had Lori Garver on the show on this show and we had a long conversation actually backing off a lot of what we talked about the midterms and then Eric Berger came on off nominal a couple of days later and I had a like I don't know I went on like a, a a vision quest or something and I totally changed my feelings on commercial Leo development um and I no longer think it's something that NASA should be putting money in because they're half-assing it and if and I, I understand why it's getting the, the due that it's getting in the budget requests, but I'm also alongside NASA and the administration half-assing it. I'm getting really bad vibes from all of the companies that are involved in the commercial Leo development at all. And hmm. if if NASA is the only customer or only substantial customer, I just don't think that's going to close out for us. And the thing that Lori Garver had to do with this was that she convinced me that the commercial space stations aren't aren't racing the ISS and it's decommissioning. They're racing being on the surface of the moon with Artemis. And mm. I think she convinced me of something she didn't mean to convince me of after talking to her more. <laughs> but um, yeah. I, it, I just find it in this really weird spot that it can't get the development budget that it needs to to actually exist on the time frame that we need it. So I just find it in such a weird spot. And then the the statement to come out and say, we're actually going to put almost as much money into the deorbit tug per year as we are the commercial space stations. It's like, okay, is that low key a way that we could replace the Russian segment to provide propulsion to keep the ISS up? If Because Russia hasn't extended to 2030 yet. Mm -hmm. So that's not even clear that that part's going to be needed either. So I don't know. I understand the need for the deorbit tug, but I don't know. Do you believe the writing on the tin that this is just about deorbit services? No, clearly it's a multi-purpose system and 
they they say that implicitly within they say like for, and for other reasons that this is useful <laughs> and, you know it could be useful for commercial stations too maybe it just stays up there and it tugs and moves things around you know there's all sorts of ideas with these and yeah i think obviously there's a multi-factor it, you wouldn't get 180 million suddenly in the budget if it was you know for, if it wasn't for a number of potential things including boosting the station potentially for the russian uh pullout yeah. you know and that's not saying it will happen but it's certainly covering their butts in case it there's yeah, a and, need and for it in my in my view i'd rather all the money go to that and not worry about the commercial leo stuff if yeah. it is going to be half-assed both by nasa and the industry and that's my well, worry I mean, I don't know. Is it really half? Ass? I mean, NASA's putting a good amount of ass <laughs> in there, in the sense that no one knows how much a commercial space station, how much a full cost. ass would be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, hasn't been done before, and yeah. they're kind of guessing. And maybe they could have done it more to have more partners with it, but it's not clear to me what the requirements even are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that is the other problem, and this is where I get worried about commercial Leo, uh, Leo for for space stations is that what are they trying to do? And if you don't even know what they're tr- trying to do, you have no way to constrain design. And then you have no way to even guess what your costs are going to be beyond are you going to just have someone sit in a slightly larger dragon capsule and just float around for a while? Are we talking about like salute level space stations? Do you want to do research on them still? If so, you have a bunch of conditions that are incompatible with other types of manufacturing goals. They went through all of this in the 19... A great book, Howard McCurdy, is The Space Station Decision, if you've ever read that, or, or if your readers want to listen to this. Um, I have one called The Space Shuttle Decision, but I've not read The Space <laughs> it Station may Decision. It might also be Space Station Decision, and it goes through this whole era in the early 80s of NASA's like, all right, we built the shuttle, it's operational, now we do the space station like we always wanted, and and... People say, okay, what's it going to do? It's like, well, what won't it do? Like, we'll be able to have people up there. We'll do research. We'll do medical research. We'll construct things. We'll repair satellites. And they started to actually try to implement this. And it's like, oh, well, the vibrational like modes of a large space station make it impossible for scientific observation of the Earth because you're just, you're not still. You're docking with things all the time. The environment of like spacecraft coming to and fro will destroy delicate optics. Uh, if you're doing medical experiments or, or delicate scientific experiments on board, the vibration consequences of building stuff or manufacturing aren't going to work. You have to, you know, you ever try to solder in space? You have all these sorts of like little pieces of, of metal and hot things flying everywhere and floating. It, because they said it would do everything, they realized there's actually mutual incompatibility due to the just brutally inhospitable nature of zero G and, and space. And so it, that's one of the reasons why they had to cram down. And, and even now, ISS is obviously an imperfect platform. So what's a commercial station going to do that's even more constrained and cost effective, but also do something we need? And I think that to me is it has the to big, do all that and make money, which is and make money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah. And so, I mean, I can see maybe if they say the only purpose for a commercial space station is to do direct practical tests for long duration spaceflight to Mars, maybe or something. And what's that going to do that Gateway can't do then? Or how, you know, it's just, I don't, I've never, and I still feel, me personally, right, I'm speaking on my personal perspective, that I've never seen commercial space stations or the need to maintain a permanent presence in Leo fully justified. Like, what, what, what has the ISS not done that we still have yet to do after 30 years? 
there may be good answers to that, but I haven't seen those elucidated. And so to your point, I think people are just kind of guessing and there's this inertia behind it. The, the most practical benefit of the ISS is stimulating our commercial launch uh, industry. And in this budget, I was struck by this number. They, they proudly proclaim NASA has paid out nearly $26 billion to its commercial resupply partners since the inception of the program, mainly in operational costs, which is just stunning how much money that is. And that's the big motivation and impetus. I think that, and, and obviously we've seen a huge practical benefit from it, but is that enough then to keep doing this for 30 more years? Are we, are we have we gotten the juice out of that fruit? Right. And is there yeah. something worth doing with that money further out? I don't know. But again, I think to your point, we, we're gonna, <laughs> there's, there's kind of this inertia carrying this that's not fully justified. So they don't know how to quite what to ask for. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't want to keep it too long. So we should talk about planetary <laughs> yeah, stuff. We barely even scratched the surface I, on I know, commercial. We should probably go about <laughs> four and a half hours, but <laughs> neither of us have that much time today. <laughs> planetary is a whole nother side and probably burying the lead. This is where there is some I don't have the button for the alarm nearby, but I probably should play the hot drama alarm uh, in this instance because Mars sample return is having some cost growth. Uh, there's the whole ESA component that we talked about up front mm -hmm. with replacing some of the Russian uh, parts of other missions. But Venus is uh, getting screwed. Yeah. I but think that's I don't know how, if I could put it better than that. <laughs> yeah, that's a roughly well, one of the Venus missions, Veritas, the orbiting Venus mission. NASA selected two in the last discovery rounds, right? These are competitively selected, quote unquote, small missions, which these days mean roughly a billion dollars. One is going to be the atmospheric probe. That's Da Vinci. And that's fine. That's moving forward or seemingly fine. It, it's in the budget, just fine. But the follow on to Magellan, the, the new upgraded radar mapping orbiting spacecraft went down to a, a laughably, I mean, it's not zero, it's not canceled, but is functionally a canceled mission. 1.5 million a year to, is, I think, a comatose level life support level for the science team and, and no one else. So they've laid off all the engineers, no more design, no more buying parts, no more getting ready. And it's interesting, NASA had characterized this in last November, I believe, as a three-year delay to this mission. But this is an indefinite delay. This is not a three a three year delay. You would see it popping back up in this five year budget run out. That that is not what the case is here. Right, because there are and, four years listed past this one on the budget. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and they're all so, just it, they did exactly what you said that that Excel grab and, and stretch out <laughs> to the right the one point five in indefinite, and that's not a functional mission. That's not an actual mission. That's a ghost mission. Is there precedent for this kind of thing happening? Um, I, I probably have to constrain that in some some years because of the structure of these kinds of missions at this point. But is this how it usually goes down, or is this just like is this, this one of those is, things that NASA? Yeah. Let me throw this one out there as an option. I don't feel like it is because of the team's been told certain things. But is this the case where like certain White Houses would always zero out Sophia, and then Congress would bring it back, or zero out the Education Office, and Congress would bring it back? Or is this mm, yeah, different? This is different. That? This feels different, and. I mean, they may be hoping for this to for Congress to put it back, but that it's a if usually they just cancel it, which makes it easy, you know, the real straight out the, the the threat. And to step back, this is unusual. I mean, they selected, they had the opportunity 
through this discovery selection process in in 2020 and 2021, they evaluated a bunch of proposals and NASA committed to two missions. They selected two. They made that commitment. Now, there's a subtle difference for the program development and systems engineering nerds among us between formulation and implementation, where you hit this thing called KDPC, right? Key decision point C. And that's where a program becomes, in a sense, official. NASA officially commits to a schedule and cost for a a project. Then you are in implementation. You're building it. You're bending metal. You are getting ready to launch. All of your contracts are in place. Prior to that, which is where Veritas was and also where DaVinci is right after a discovery selection, you spend a couple years in what's called formulation. You're spending good chunks of money, tens of millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions, doing all the, you know, kind of crossing your T's and dotting your I's of of designing the spacecraft, making sure all the technology is ready to go, maybe making test articles and making sure everything's going to work. And, you know, you're in phases B at that point is what it's called in, in formulation. And until you finish this, you're, you haven't made, NASA has not made a formal long-term commitment to the mission. This is what happened to Neo Surveyor uh, a couple years ago. They got delayed in phase B and then NASA came back, implemented it it's in phase D and now it's or phase C. And now it's in the budget and everything has a launch date and it's all committed to. So it's always a, a bit of a delicate time for missions. It's rare for a discovery mission to have competed through that, been selected, and then be cut because A, discovery missions just tend not to cost very much. And so even billion-dollar ones, you're not going to save a ton out of your budget to to slow one down. Uh, But also you've gone through this competitive process and NASA had the chance to say, can we afford one or two? And this was a year ago, (laughs) two years ago. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like this multiple years ago. Yeah, and they blame... Psyche, NASA does to a certain extent of saying the, the, in, the review board from Psyche said JPL can't handle the work it's having, you know, has ahead of it. JPL is the, the main contractor or the main institution building Veritas. But as the team points out, Veritas is functionally, it's being built at Lockheed Martin. There's only something like a, a dozen or so JPL engineers directly on the mission. Most of it because it's an orbiting spacecraft. Lockheed makes those buses. Lockheed's made a ton of those, particularly at Mars. It's not a huge pull on JPL. Has, they were otherwise on schedule. They were otherwise on budget. My impression is that they were just the politically weakest mission at this phase in development. Da Vinci is based at the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins in Maryland. Uh, they only usually have a handful of planetary missions at a time. And the relative size of APL within Maryland is much bigger compared to the relative size of JPL within California, which is itself something like the sixth largest economy in the world. There's also within JPL, their top goal is Mars sample return, which we will soon talk about, right? Is a yep. $5 billion and plus mission. Then Europa Clipper, which is itself a $5 billion mission. And then you have NISAR and these other Earth science missions and Neo Surveyor now, which is now mandated by Congress. And so Psyche, or, uh, and then Psyche, of course, to finish, and in a way, Veritas, I kind of imagine it's like on, a, on the flock, a political flock of, of, of uh, herd animals, the budget-cutting wolf looks for the weakest <laughs> looking member and goes after that to really push him yeah, in and, for and your explanation that there, a lot of the team was not at JPL and it was actually Lockheed Martin working on the hardware, like that, that as well makes it easier because it's 
less disruptive to JPL over if there's mm-hmm. fewer people at JPL impacted. So what what looks like a strength when you're looking at it, you know, as just a mission is a weakness politically when it comes to moments like this. Yeah. And it's not to say that JPL doesn't want to do it. I want to be clear about that. But when their back is against a wall, they have their priorities and, and it's not going to be at the top of that list. This yeah. is Alan Stern, who uh, uh, led New Horizons to Pluto, very explicitly chose and he wrote about it in his book. He, he took New Horizons to APL as opposed to JPL because he knew because of APL's smaller size that New Horizons would be their top priority and they'd go to the mat to protect that mission, which they did. They had to multiple times in a way that JPL just wouldn't because of the relative scope of it. And there's that's kind of this weird level of insider politics for how these things work. But it's just when pushed up against the wall, I mean, clearly what happened here is that Mars sample return was growing. Neo Surveyor is now growing in the budget. And there was just an internal pain point about what the White House was willing to put towards planetary science versus other NASA sciences and other priorities. And Veritas was the thing to give. And, and the good news is that it's not fully canceled, you know, even though it's, it's very bad, it's not gone. And so they can revive it if money comes back pretty easily. The science team, as you might imagine, is not happy. It's to work as long as they did decades trying to get this mission to Venus and to have the rug pulled out from under them is just profoundly uh, dispiriting. And to see that we have uh, a huge interest in Venus, both from from China and the European Space Agency, uh, private companies like Rocket Lab, and then to have such an important piece of that exploration sliced out, it, it's it's not great. Yeah, um, it's so we're I think what we really would like to see, and this is in the in the statement we made, consulting with partners and and other people who are really interested in this, if Congress can set a launch date. And we say, it's already too late to launch in the original planned window. That that ship has sailed because they've already slashed the spending on this mission. They've already laid off most of the engineering team. They don't have, you know, they have to start over again. But as we do a two-year delay to 2029, and this is something Congress can do. They've done this with New Surveyor. They've done this with other missions. They can write it in an authorization or they can write it in their appropriations language. Saying, you know, NASA shall give us <laughs> something along these lines. Thou shalt... Uh, <laughs> provide Congress with a, a budget plan that shows a 2029 launch. That helps if we set a fixed launch date that really says, okay, now that we know we need to launch by then, the budget kind of works backwards from that. And we can say, here's how much we need every year to achieve that launch date. Because right now, absent a launch date, we're not even sure what they need to, you know, to, to move forward because we don't have clarity on the mission. It also really helps. We should note this mission had $90 million worth of contributions from European partners, including uh, primarily the Italian space agency. They were already building these things. And so this delay is already impacting this partnership model that at the high level, as we opened up with this, uh, uh topic, already undermining this commitment to support our allies and partners <laughs> in other, yeah. you know, in, in these, uh, through these endeavors by doing this, it's, it's not a helpful thing to do. So we think Congress can really help by setting a 2029 launch date, and then we can start to work to fix this problem financially. Yeah. I got a link in the show notes to the statement. It was, uh, well-written and, uh, pretty cool to see that kind of stuff. Cause you know, 
not often there's this kind of hot drama in the planetary budgets. So, <laughs> well, um, back in the this, this brings back to me the the bad old days of the early 2010s when there was a lot of uh, frustrating <laughs> drama going back and forth with like Europa and other. I always try to give myself planetary is at 3.35 billion, uh, almost 3.4 billion. I mean, that's historically very high, but at the yeah. same time, it is amazing what we're we're asking it to do, and a third of that is Mars sample return, which now has clearly become NASA's top scientific mission at a level of JWST, but exceeding it in terms of annual expenditures. It's just stunning. Yeah, the, so the the notes about the cost growth there, um, not surprising, but was there anything to draw from the way that it was talked about? <laughs> yeah, they said uh, the, the notes were, we're going to ask for $950 million this year. And all of our future projections that we talked about earlier, they're meaningless because we anticipate they're going to be higher. They don't even know what to ask for at this point. And that's not, that's not good at this stage because they're in phase B. They, they haven't hit that magic confirmation point either. They, they're trying to do that later this year. I think we just saw them announce a, um, a few weeks ago. And once they do that, they'll have a clarity about what they need to ask for to, to launch by 28. It's likely it'll be more than what they're asking for this year. And that total pushes up the entire project cost. So beyond what the, the planetary science decadal survey has said is the absolute pain point, where if it's more than $5.3 billion or something like that, we need to go to Congress and get extra money. It can't take money away from other planetary programs. This was always the risk. Just the, this is why we have not done Mars sample return before. It is an insanely difficult problem. and. Yeah. The complexity that we've created, they built a very politically resilient program that has added a lot of complexity in terms of engineering because of the very tight integrations with the European contributions and that there's almost every NASA center has a piece and is committing something to this mission. So this is and the Artemis four of planetary science. It, is, it kind of is. Like, and you see how they do, you know, it's no accident. And yeah, <laughs> they built a, a very solid political base. And what we're seeing is this is reflected now in how they're even asking for the money. They're asking for 950 million. That is more than the entire heliophysics science division at NASA by a substantial amount for one project. And I want to be totally clear. Mars Sanford is my top priority at the Planetary Society, too. Like, it's all of our top priority. It's the top priority of the scientific community through the Decadal Survey. I don't want it to become a JWST, but anytime you have this level of project, you have this emergent complexity because of the ambitious nature of it, because of the integrations, and because of just the practical political considerations of how you spread this around to enable yourself to, in a sense, to get the permission structure to ask for a billion dollars a year. It will be a, 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 and the other tricky part of this, and this is what I worry about, is it is fundamentally planetary science in general, and Mars sample return specifically is a good example of this, demonstrates this distinct nature of planetary exploration programs from astronomy programs and astrophysics telescopes. You build something like JWST, you spend 20 years and $8 billion to build it. It's a huge chunk of their ability. They, they, they have to delay all these other missions. But at the end of the day, you have a space observing platform, beautiful, exquisite, that anyone in the uh, field can use and propose time on. And it can do all sorts of different types of astronomy from infrared to, to pseudo visible 
exoplanets, planetary observations, stars, quasars, galaxies, you name it. Mars sample return and planetary science in general is, is not like that. You go to one place with your mission. You're going to study that planet. If you're a Venus scientist, you get nothing out of Mars sample return. If you want to send a mission to Europa if, and if you study Uranus, you're out of luck. You get nothing from that mission. Maybe some broad overall awareness. But every mission is very specific based on specialty and destination. Mars sample return takes that to another degree because you don't get the science back until the end. So even though you can, every Mars mission has gone to Mars, you land and you immediately start taking pictures and the geomorphologists among people is like, hey, I know the shape of that rock. Let's do some science with that. Mars sample return, we have to wait until 2033 at the earliest to get the rocks back. And then among the people who, there's a subset of a subset of people who specialize in these types of geochemistry and rock analysis and things that will really feed into the science. So you're asking the broader planetary community to carry a very big lift for science that broadly will not impact them. And that's going to be tough going forward. That is beautifully put. And uh, this show has been filled with like this theme. I feel like, well, we don't actually know exactly how much that's going to be yet. So let's take a good guess. But um, <laughs> I kept you way over. So let's just quickly talk about like one minute on like what what now the congressional sure. situation, as you mentioned, is this is going to be a weird year. It's essentially an election year already because there's yeah. going to be an ele- there's going to be primary stuff happening soon. Uh, what happens now? So we have divided government and Congress again, and obviously just cover some very basic politics 101, right? Republicans run the House of Representatives, Democrats run the Senate and the White House, and they are already coming in. And usually after a midterm election, <laughs> when you have divided power like this, the incentive, political incentive isn't to find compromise. The political incentive is actually to demarcate your distinctive ideas of politics and find conflict. And so particularly in the Republican-led House, you're looking at a very strong revival of cost-cutting uh, austerity budgeting. And they are talking about returning to at least 2022 levels, but only for discretionary spending and only for non-defense discretionary spending, which in a practical matter means you are cutting hundreds of billions of dollars from the pot of money available to NASA and every other non-defense, non-social security program. You're talking maybe a a 30% across the board cut if that was to happen. It won't because the Democrats run the Senate, but they're so far apart and likely unwilling to find a compromise. It's not clear to me politically how that path to a compromise happens. That in the ideal case, (laughs) or let me phrase that, The ideal case is that they find something and they maybe even keep funding flat or a small boost or whatever. It's more likely what happens is you get something called a continuing resolution where they basically just, it's the Excel spreadsheet drag method of last (laughs) year's budget where you just extend last year's 2023 money into 2024. And that usually happens for a few months at a time anyway, just because of the pace of legislating is very slow. But they can do these things. This happened after the Tea Party came into power very similar dynamics with a Republican run house in 2012 and a, uh, or 2011 and a, and a democratic Senate and president in 2011 where they could not agree. And they just did what was called a full year CR full year continuing resolution. So they basically just, they just took a mulligan 
and said, we're just not going to do a budget this year. We're just going to keep it where it is from last year. That to me seems to be is probably the most likely outcome. That's still better than some of the more dire consequences of like blowing the debt ceiling and, or just shutting down the government uh, for months at a time. But even so, consequence of keeping it flat, it's going to be real tough. Mars sample return probably won't make a 2028 20, launch window. Uh, Veritas won't be canceled, but it'll go down exactly to that 1.5 um, because that'll be the proposal from the administration. They'll take the lowest of all possible proposals. You won't see growth in Neo Surveyor to make it launch in 2028 either because the, the money won't be there. You'll see a bunch of consequences from that that are not good. I think overall, Artemis is probably okay in that situation. You probably can't ramp up a second commercial lander provider, but that one is so kind of been working in and institutionally going forward that you're probably fine. It's the, it's the programs that are at the early stages that need to surge right now to, to make their launch windows. That's where you would really see a, a negative consequence of a continuing resolution. Yeah. I had a thought the other day, and this is probably too cynical, uh, that when we're doing the show and many presidents from now that we're going to, the U S is going to be in a phase where we have like a presidential election and one budget and then four years of the same budget and then another election and then four years of the same budget. And I'm like, there's a lot of people asking NASA to get funded for five years at a time. So <laughs> planning wise, <laughs> yes. maybe not the worst. Was that <laughs> so the even monkey's my cynical paw? take is like, yeah, that, maybe, you know, <laughs> that's the monkey's paw wish of being funded at five years at a time is that's how it's answered. Exactly. Yeah, well, so. I, and let me make a positive plug. Cause I don't want to, end on this dour note if, if you'll allow me a positive thing and i would so love it this is this is the planetary society i mean this is one of our jobs is to not let this happen to the degree that we can and we do have we, we're going to be doing april 18th uh, a, a day of action online a digital day of action where we get our members and people to communicate with congress uh supporting these key missions particularly very toss our sample return nasa itself and then we'll be doing an in-person day of action in September, uh, right when this budget stuff will be coming to a head in Washington, DC. The, you know, so we have online petitions, ways to take action. I have an online class called Space Advocacy 101 that's available on our new uh, digital member community for our members uh, of the Planetary Society. And it teaches you all the basics, makes you a better advocate and, and speaker for space exploration and, and supporter. And so there are ways to do this. And, and this is tough this year because the overall currents are very strong against, but it's nothing specific to space. And the more we can make a positive case for space and to remind people that represent us that things like this suffer when they allow partisanship to stiltify and ossify the progress of, of government then, you know, we, we push back on this. And so that's, to me, it's really important. And, and generally there is a very opening and welcoming attitude towards support for space in the U S government, regardless of party and the society and other organizations that, that do this really depend on people to participate in that process to make sure that's not lost in the noise. Stuck the landing. On enough note. So <laughs> thanks again, Casey, for hanging out. Uh, like I said, I got a bunch of stuff in the show notes, uh, so people will be able to find you. But we always appreciate stealing some time from you to get some great thoughts. Anytime. Thanks again to Casey for coming on the show. It is always fun 
chatting with him. Always enlightening. So uh, if you like these kind of shows, this podcast is 100% listener supported. So head over to manageandcutoff.com slash support and join up there. Join the 866 people supporting the show every single month, including 35 executive producers. Thanks to Pat, Eunice, Bob, the Astrogators at SEE, Fred, David, Chris, Joel, Dawn Aerospace, Jan, Matt, Rob, Warren, Small Spark Space Systems, Frank, Ryan, Lars from Agile Space, Donald, Moritz, Simon, Theo and Violet, Benjamin, Chris, Pat from KC, Russell, Tim Dodd, David Ashenot, Steve, George, Andrew, Lee, Tyler, and four anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for making this episode possible. I could not do it without your support. And if you want to jump in, support the show, and get an extra podcast in your feed every week, manageandcutoff.com slash support. Sign up at $3 a month or more, and you'll get access to Miko headlines that I do every single week, running through all the stories. This week is going to be a long one because the news has been hot out of the satellite conference, uh, as well as the budget stuff that's going on. So there's been a lot to sort through this week. So these are one of the weeks that are just really great to uh, jump in there and uh, have me read you the space news and sort out what is and is not important. Uh, It's a great way to support the show and stay up on everything that's going on. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. If you want to hit me up on Twitter at WeHaveMiko, on Mastodon at Miko at Spacey.Space, or on email, Anthony at ManagingCutoff.com, I am going to have some pretty big news to talk about soon, so you'll want to uh, either sign up for the newsletter, there's a link in the show notes, or follow me on one of those platforms and you'll hear all about it when it does hit. But for now, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. 